everyone, it's Lou Rosenfeld, and welcome to the latest edition of the Rosenfeld Review podcast series. I'm here with Teresa Regley. Hello, Teresa. How are you? Hello, Lou. I'm great. How are you? I'm really good. I'm happy to have you on the show. Uh, Teresa is the author of the very first of our Digital Reality Check series, and it is called Digital and Marketing Asset Management. That's an area that she's an expert in. Uh, Teresa is principal analyst and managing partner with the Real Story Group. Teresa, you and I are going to create a, 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 a digital asset right now, this podcast. Indeed. Indeed. Now, part of my understanding of what your book's about is that things like this podcast may be a file that live somewhere deep and dark in the depths of a server in a large enterprise and that someone may someday want to find that asset and that's kind of a problem right i prefer to think of it as a challenge rather than a problem an opportunity yes, an opportunity indeed yes it is it is um you know this podcast is is one of really billions of digital assets that are out there uh, in the world so yes that is a typical enterprise problem that you describe and billions probably within certain enterprises right Indeed. Um, hundreds of millions, uh, depending on if you talk about things like segments and raw pieces of video and audio and then the entire piece of this podcast. You could, of course, break this podcast into different segments and it would be uh, children assets of the master asset. So there's all sorts of, of numbers that we could slice and dice when we talk about digital assets. And, and it's so there's, there's this whole challenge of nesting. It's like micro-information architecture. And then there's this, the fact that many of these assets, and it's certainly not just podcasts, it's, it's things like uh, uh, you know uh, assets that are used for by graphic designers, brand materials, animation, uh, anything. Uh, these, uh, they're, they're non-textual, but they have to have some sort of text associated with them, right, for the metadata for them to be found and managed and so forth. Absolutely. Um, and that metadata is not necessarily just um, textual metadata anymore. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the metadata is around things like shapes and colors and uh, the, the sorts of things that you might um, use a color swatch to, to search um, that aren't necessarily typing in a word. So all kinds of metadata uh, that, we, that we would need to find, to find these assets, of course, which is, which is partially why they're, they're so hard to find, because a lot of them end up on that server in the basement, and, and no one knows necessarily what we're talking about on this podcast, <laughs> if it's just a file. Well, well, let's talk a little bit about what those files are and who we is. Who's dealing with this? Who, who's this a headache for? Or, I'm sorry, an opportunity for opportunity for. Uh, really, it's, it's everybody now. Um, and I think that's part of the very interesting evolution of this space. Um, digital asset management really um, was, was primarily the, the focus of firms that created media and brand assets as their primary uh, business. So ad agencies, um, branding agencies, and media companies like movie studios and like television broadcasters, they were the ones that were using uh, the first digital asset management systems or media asset management systems, as they're sometimes uh, called, you know, when, it, when they first existed, which is really 20-plus years ago now. 
but these days it's it's everybody. Um, it's even small companies that are creating short videos or podcasts or even individual consultants who are creating podcasts um, or any sort of uh, short video that they might want to put on their website. Um, every Everybody's creating digital assets now. Um, it's part of what's happened as a result of social media. It's part of what's happened as, as a result of everyone being a publisher on the internet. Um, and it's, uh, it's just why we've arrived at this point where everyone should care about them. Now, I know that, that this is not completely true in larger organizations, but I, I think for the most part, the, the, the worst thing about this challenge is that we have really no one to blame but ourselves, right? I mean, we're often trying to find stuff that we may have created, and we can't even find our own stuff, much less the, the stuff that other people on our teams have created, or, or certainly people spread out around the organization. Correct. Yeah. And I think that that's really what you've just described is, is the key business case for this technology that, that, that is, that is um, really spurring the investment for a lot of organizations to, to buy this technology. Oftentimes there's a, there's a media department or there's an archive department, uh, especially when, it, when you think of a, a cultural organization, for example. I've worked with some, some symphony orchestras where you've got some archivists in the basement and there's, there's literally decades and decades or more than 100 years of, of, of recordings and uh, there's one person who, who happens to know um, where it is or, or perhaps it's still only in physical form. Uh, and the the drive to to now make those things findable is is tremendous, and it's not just for necessarily the benefit of the the organization that that owns that that asset, but also for the benefit of external, for example, um, in my in my orchestra example, someone who's studying music and wants to find a certain uh, performance from. 1922 of some particular symphony by some particular musician. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a more um, global uh, sort of uh, motivation now to, to do this rather than just doing it for the benefit of the internal organization. Well, okay. And, and of course, you know, I'd like to hear a little bit more about you know, how well these, uh, this class of software is working. Sure. I'm sure they're um, providing just a really wonderful user experience. Sadly, they're really not. Um, and that's all enterprise thing. software is, you know, it, it, it's as good as it costs, right? I mean, it's really expensive, so it's got to be great. Um, I would say that, that unfortunately, damn software is, is sadly behind the curve. And I was just uh, in Boston this past week, and uh, I went out to dinner with some, some former colleagues of mine. Um, I used to work at a systems integrator running a content management team there. And um, one one gentleman by by the name of Jeremy Kriegel, he's a a UX guy who's who's done a lot of uh, a lot of good work over the years. And uh, I just asked him straight out. I said, you know, why why don't these software companies hire more user experience people, or why aren't there enterprise content management uh, user experience designers who who get hired to do digital workplace or marketing technology internal user interface design, so that people who are managing all these assets and people who are managing all this enterprise content actually have a good experience. And he was just shaking his head and he said, well, they just don't want to invest in it and they never have. Um, and it's sadly, it's true. I think that, uh, you know, I've been following this particular space, digital asset management, for, for about nine years now before I was more in the web content management side. 
But I, I would say that about a third of the vendors that, that I follow, which is about 50 of them, um, only have just hired user experience people in the last 18 months or so. Uh, they basically just tr entrusted their engineers to, to put some fields on top of this database and they thought it was usable. Uh, so we really have a long way to go and I really wish that all these software companies would hire a UX person and I really wish that that large enterprises would also put more emphasis on the usability of enterprise applications because they're still really poor. Well, are there specific uh, either use cases or, or aspects of the technology where just a little bit of UX love would make a world of difference for some of these products? Yeah, I think that... Uh you know, sort some simple principles, just in terms of things like navigation and breadcrumbs, and uh, and just having a a uh, when you search for an asset, um, being able to look at the results at a glance in a in a meaningful way that helps you. Uh, you know, one of the classic, um, you know, best practices for search results is, well, you shouldn't have to click through to actually see if it's the one that you want, right? If it's the page that you want, you should have enough information there in your result to be able to, to make that decision as a user. And uh, many of these systems, they... they they have just a very small thumbnail that you can't really see. Um, if you mouse over it, there's you don't get anything. You don't see the metadata. Uh, or you can't even play, say, a thumbnail with a video to really see, do I want to take up the bandwidth and do I want to take the time to download this video? Am I sure it's the right one? Um, so even just simple usability principles like that, when you're, when you're talking about managing assets, uh, just a little bit of that UX love makes such a profound difference in a creative application. So, okay, we, we've established a few things. One is that enterprise software, including uh, digital asset management tools, kind of sucks. And hopefully the tide is going to start turning a little bit. You're seeing some signs of hope because there's a real great opportunity for UX people. Uh, we also um, know that this is a problem, this whole area of, of getting access to these assets for pretty much everyone. But I think you've written the book um, more for people who are... Uh, marketing professionals? Uh, mm -hmm. Are there also like a, a, a couple of use cases that you're really trying to nail with the book? Real kind of a few specific problems that you're helping readers solve. I think the number one um, purpose of the book is, is to help marketers understand the technology that can empower them to do what they want to do. Um, and I, I work with so many brilliant marketers and uh, I am definitely not a marketer <laughs> by any by any means. I'm a technologist, uh, and I, I work with these these people that have literally multi million dollar budgets. Uh, they work for Fortune 500 companies, and they have amazing products to sell. They they have powerful brands that people are very loyal to, um, but they don't necessarily understand how they can fully use the technology to to really sell that more of that product um, to get their message out to more people and to reach new consumers. Um, and, and if you're talking about people who work for a cultural or a heritage organization, it's, it's about that, that, that more um, you know, educational side and, and empowerment side to, to help people discover you know, an artist or uh, you know, some kind of historical era or whatever it is. And I think that the more that they can understand the technology that they can use to get their marketing message out there, to get their brand out there, to get a digital asset out there, to get a high-resolution image of a piece of art out there, um, the more successful they're going to be. So this book is really there 
Um, and, and I wrote it the way I did so that it was approachable and so people could read it and, and really get the, the basics. Um, and then as the more they read along, the better they're going to understand it and the more they're going to understand how the technology can empower them to achieve their mission. You know, one of the things that um, I find to be a delicious irony in what you're talking about is that the, the marketing people who are one of the main audiences for the book are then themselves quite susceptible to marketing. And uh, the vendors of damn technologies, uh, like every other enterprise software providers, uh, are, are investing heavily in marketing and flooding uh, the mind space with all kinds of things that probably um, very few resources besides your book are able to counter. Agreed. Uh, I would say that uh, the, the vendors who sell damn technology are much better at marketing than they are at user experience. Sure. <laughs> so to go back to that prior concept, uh, you know, they have a lot of sales teams uh, or a lot of salespeople, I should say. They have, uh, they have very um, convincing um, and, and um, how would I put it? You know, they put ROI calculators on their website and they make you think if you buy the software, you're going to save all this time and, and, and money uh, that, that right now you're doing a lot of manual work uh, to, get, to get that marketing campaign out there or to get those assets out there. Um, so it, it's also a very, uh, I would say it's a book that's infused with, with, with skepticism in the sense that if you are going to invest in, in very pricey technology, uh, you, you have to you have to be cautious. Uh, you have to make sure that not only that you understand what you're buying, but but also that uh, you don't overpay. Um, it's kind of like buying a car. You want to make sure that you're not seduced by the Ferrari when all you really need is is you know a simple Volkswagen or or even a bicycle to go up the street. So right? how, how do we um, get to the point where you know we we can basically block out the, the marketing noise for this category long enough that we can actually understand our own needs and, and develop our own functional uh, specifications and then go shopping? Well, uh, in the book, we talk a lot about use case scenarios. And of course, anyone who works in the user experience world is, is intimately familiar with personas and uh, writing a, a user story or a user journey. And when you select software, uh, those things are equally effective um, when it comes to selecting the right software for you. So thinking about, okay, who is the enterprise user of this software? What do they have to do to get their job done? Uh, what do they have to do to, to, to publish these assets correctly and effectively or to get that campaign put together correctly and effectively? Uh, and, and write that story and think about, well, how do, they, how do they find these assets? How do they assemble these assets? How do they deploy these assets effectively? Uh, and we talk about that in the book. Uh, and we actually write about, um, uh, or I should say there's, there's actually a whole chapter dedicated to these different use case scenarios. And you can put yourself in, in one of these boxes or you can even customize your own story. And when you go out shopping, you should think very specifically about how you're going to use the software. And then you should actually test the software to make sure that you can accomplish that user journey within the software. And then you won't pick the wrong thing. That's really all it takes. You know, it's music to my ears because I, I personally have been railing against uh, a lot of software vendors, not only, well, not so much in this space, which is new to me, but certainly in the search space and uh, a number of other areas where, um, you know, it's tool first and then let's backfit all the use cases for why we even bought that tool to fit the tool 
rather than the other way around. Um, it's so frustrating when you look at technology first approaches and uh, we still see it a lot. One of the things we are seeing though in the enterprise UX space is that, um, you know, let's say, you know, there's a CIO uh, driven or an IT driven uh, purchase for some large uh, piece of software that the whole company is supposed to use and everyone hates it and they start doing end runs. They, whether it's security software or really pretty much anything, publishing tools, um, you know, there is the whole uh, consumer web out there that people are already using when they're not at work and they're um, wondering and actually asking the question, why doesn't it work this way at work? And so in many cases, uh, they're asking that question and in many cases, they're actually doing the end runs using tools that are not sanctioned. And that has an interesting impact on the organization. I mean, that's just starting to happen in a lot of settings. Uh, and uh, it, it's really, you know, probably putting IT into a very uncomfortable position, well, in many cases, rightfully. Are there uh, examples of that with uh, digital asset management, where there is sort of like a a public version, like I don't know that I would hold Getty as out as like a great model, but I don't know something like that that people are saying. Well, why, why can't we do it this way at work? <laughs> well, uh, a lot of people mentioned Google Image Search to me. You know, as sort of, I, I just want it to be that easy. And then, of course, I have to explain. Well, Google is using the metadata of you know millions of <laughs> millions of users, millions of sites, and. And, and the algorithm has the advantage of everyone on the internet and, and analyzing all the metadata around the, uh, around the image. And, um, you know, that, but there's, there's an interesting thing that's happening now in the world of DAM, uh, and, and the vendors are starting to catch on here, and that's that they are, in fact, starting to use metadata that's external, right? Um, or they're using uh, cloud services, um, like Microsoft, for example, now has cognitive services in Azure, and there's several dam vendors that are using uh, image analysis of public images to do pattern matching, you know, and then to tag, uh, to dynamically tag images that uh, an enterprise is then putting in their own, you know, private private cloud. Uh, so there's there's more of that coming to the fore um, because that's exactly what you know people want it to work like Google Image Search mm-hmm. or they want it to work like YouTube where they just go and they. They type in their favorite music video and it immediately comes up. Uh, and, and I think for, for that to happen, we're going to have to use, you know, in terms of metadata, especially if you're talking about an enterprise that has a whole very large volume of, of imagery that they want to get into a dam very quickly. Uh, you know, you could outsource manual tagging of all those images, but the time to look at them and then figure out what it is and then to tag it uh, is prohibitive in the case of many organizations. So. I, I think the the um, the you know what's happening now with with the intelligence around imagery on the public internet, and the fact that a lot of the software can actually do a visual analysis in terms of shape, in terms of colors, in terms of um, even a brand logo can now be identified. Um, I think we're going to get we're going to get to that experience of sort of the Google image search much more quickly in the enterprise. But we've got to use what's out in in you know the public um, the public view. 
So there's some uh, some positive impact that maybe uh, the consumer space is having on, on the enterprise space here. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to um, wrap up with one more question, and it's uh, uh, I'm going to ambush you a bit, and I, I, you're totally allowed to not answer it. But um, of the damn vendors out there, um, do any of them seem to get UX? Are there any that are giving you hope that um, they're taking it seriously and, and that their products might really start to take some great strides forward uh, based on that. Feel free to, again, not, I don't want to put you too much on the spot. So you can say uh, TBD. Um, what do you no, I'm happy to answer that question. Um, I mean, it's something that we rate in our research, right? We, we, we rate uh, all these vendors across 50 different criteria and uh, one of them is the user experience for the creative user. We also rate the user experience for the administrator. So we have two separate user experience ratings, and I would I would I would rate some of them very differently. But you know, in terms of the user experience for the creative user, um, there's there's a there's a vendor called Binder B Y N D E R, uh, and they're a Dutch vendor based in Amsterdam. Uh, and they they were they sort of blew everybody out of the water when they first um, debuted their user interface because it was extremely elegant. It was the first one that had like infinite scroll and it had this uh, you know beautiful search interface where you'd type in and it would autocomplete and you would see a little thumbnail of the image uh, in the search and it just it was the first dam that I saw that really followed all those best practices uh, for UX. Um, another one that I would call out is, is a vendor called Style Labs. Uh, they are a Belgian vendor that does a very nice job uh, as well in terms of widgetizing their interface. So it's not just um, the fact that they apply UX best practices, it's also the fact that they make it very adaptable to different user types. So you can turn on or turn off components, you can drag and drop uh, certain components and yet others are fixed. Uh, so that's obviously a, a, nice, a nice thing with an enterprise app because you want people to kind of be able to, uh, to, to make the components that they use the most kind of at the forefront. Um, but I would also cite those are those are two vendors that are um, you know especially Style Labs tends to be applied in very complex enterprises, um, but there's some dams that are just super simple um, that are uh, you know for smaller companies and sort of simpler use case scenarios. Um, and I, there's one that's called WebDam uh, that's a San Francisco-based company. And it's just a very simple dam, and it's very straightforward, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't overcomplicate it. But it's much less functionally rich than the other two I just mentioned. Uh, so they've they've applied what they do in a very clean way. Uh, so those are three that come to mind. Um, you know, everybody is really working on this now, whereas before they weren't. You know, and and this is like I said early on in the conversation. It was about eighteen months ago that that these companies that that sell damn products, I think, really got serious about UX. Most of them hadn't even moved to HTML five until uh, eighteen months, some two years ago. The, the first vendor to move to HTML five did it about four years ago. Uh, so. It, you know, it, it, it took a while for them to even think about cross-device compatibility and to think about, um, you know, the idea of responsive design, which is completely foreign, <laughs> really, to this whole world. Uh, but we're getting there. You know, we're, we're, we're getting there in this industry, and um, fortunately, there's there's several vendors that are, that are pushing the envelope and, and dragging the others along. So it sounds like, uh, aside from the third one, we have to look to the low countries for um, high UX <laughs> when it comes to damn technology. I, and uh, I will end it on a bad joke. Okay. Teresa, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's been really fun to talk with you uh, and to work with you. 
And uh, I'm, I'm so happy that your book is out now. We affectionately call it The Damn Book. It is titled Digital and Marketing Asset Management. It's the first of the Digital Reality Checks books that uh, we're putting out with our friends at The Real Story Group. And Teresa, thanks for helping people really get to the, the real story behind damn technology. Thank you. Thank you.